Well, my name is Stephanie. I'm one of the pastors here. I see some new faces. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. We're starting a new conversation this morning, so let's pray together before we jump in. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the promise of your presence. We thank you that you are here with us right now. We thank you for the privilege that it is to worship here in this public school. God, we thank you that you have given us this relationship with Sheridan so that we can celebrate things like food, but also the fact that they're sharing so much hospitality with us right now. And God, we pray for those students as they're over the summer facing some of those same needs around food and hunger. And so we just pray, God, that you would meet their needs in the name of Jesus. We thank you that the Sheridan story also has those efforts as well. And God, we just pray that it would connect to those who are in need. And we pray, God, that you would be with us this morning, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would allow each of us to be people who are changed because of your Holy Spirit's presence here with us this morning. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, so I asked everybody what kind of student they were, and I feel like that would be a big can of worms if I really got into talking with all of you. So I thought I would just confess. And if you want to come share with me later what kind of student you are or were, I'd love to hear it. But I, um, I felt like I was a fairly good student for the most part. I mean, you know, A's and B's, sometimes a little more B's, it doesn't matter. And as I got to college, I went in pretty confident, all right? So I went into college thinking, I've got this whole studying for tests thing down. And I remember going to college and having this one class that everybody said was, this class is a beast, it's the hardest. You're never gonna have, you're never gonna face a test like this one. You, you've never had a test like this, like in, in high school. And I thought, come on, there's no way that this test is that bad. Um, but we were all studying all night, right? So I had my note cards and I had my textbook and we were studying, studying, maybe not as much studying as hanging out with other people while the textbook was open. That's actually what was happening. And so, I mean, I filled out those note cards. I'm not sure I ever read them after filling them out that first time, but I felt pretty confident going into this test. Like I'll at least get a B. And I went into the test and I thought, man, I know I only made about three hours of sleep last night because we were up watching like The Sandlot or Newsies or whatever we watched back in that day. And, and I thought I'd be fine. You guys, I opened up that test and I was shocked. Luckily, it was multiple choice. And I was like, what's the statistical chance that I cannot pass this test? Anyway, long story, very short, I ended up almost failing. Like it was this close above an F. I got a D. It was at that time the first D I had had in my life and I was pretty upset. And the reason I was upset is not just that I had a D. The reason I was upset is because I was so deceived about my ability as a person at that time. I mean, I was 18. I had things figured out, you know? Like, I'm self-actualized. I know what I'm doing. But I'm getting there and I'm upset, not just because my grade was bad, but because I was so confident about what I thought I could do. And that falling down from the self-deception is really hard. It's really hard. And I think so many of us, uh, when we think about adolescence, we think about those, those things we thought about ourselves that we now know a lot better, right? How, self, oh, how, how much self-deception did we have in those teenage years? And some of you are still in those years. And, and so you come out of that time and you think, man, part of becoming an adult, part of hashtag adulting, is that you don't deal with self-deception as much anymore. Or do you? Right? Because then all of a sudden you're an adult and you have adult level problems, like uh, things like managing your money. And you are like, look, it's going fine. It's going fine. I know I'm not logging on to find out exactly how it's going, but I'm sure it's fine. And then you log on and you see, oh boy, there, I, that did add up. 
You know, like yesterday, Target shut down. That's the only time people left Target without spending more than they meant to on the way in. Like, that's it, right? Because we're so self-deceived that we're doing better in certain areas. And maybe that's not one for you, but maybe for you, it's at work. You're thinking, things are going pretty fine. I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job. And then you get to your annual review, and there's some thoughts that your supervisor has that you had no idea they were thinking about. And you realize that self-deception is still there. It's still a part of your life. And then maybe the most common one is in relationships, where we find ourselves in this spot where we're thinking in that friendship or in that romantic relationship or with my partner or even with my kids. We're thinking, yeah, it's going pretty well. I'm like mostly nice to them. Like we're mostly, they, that, that couple times I was super impatient doesn't matter that much. But then you get to one of those real conversations that you have with them and you realize it's not going fine. It's actually not going fine at all. And that is the power that self-deception has in our lives. It brings us to this place where it's a fall, it's a far fall from what we thought we were doing and where we thought we were at to the reality of where things actually are. I think that self-deception is something that takes intentionality for us to slow down and to pay attention to what's really going on in our lives, to pay attention to what's really going on in our mind and our heart. But here's the thing, sometimes even when we do that, on our own, we're not able to see some of the blind spots that we have. I know I've experienced that, I can imagine you have. But this whole thing is not new. I mean, generations upon generations upon generations of people have been facing this reality that it's easy for us to avoid the harshest realities about where we're actually at. It's easy for us to uh, find various means of escape or avoidance to really facing the things that are actually going on. But here's what I want to say to you today as we begin this new conversation. God cares about us enough to know that's what's, what is best for us is to turn around and to face the things that we are deceived about. God loves us enough to say, hang on a minute, <laughs> we need to pay attention to this because the path forward in self-deception goes nowhere good. And if we have people in our lives who care about us like that, then they'll do that as well. Doesn't make it easy, but I think that the reality of um, it's easier to stay in self-deception, that is another form of self-deception because it's not easier. Some of you know, I know I do, because it'll catch up to you in the end, and it's really hard. God loves us enough to confront these realities in our lives, and God loves us enough to promise to be with us as we face them. And here we are in this conversation, we're starting the books we don't read. It's about the 12 minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets in the Bible. For much of history, they've been actually packaged together, and a lot of times in the Jewish community, they're packaged together in what is known as the Book of the Twelve. The Book of the Twelve. They're called the Minor Prophets, not because they're less important, but because they're shorter. And so it's interesting, some of the shortest books in the Bible and we don't read them. And I'm saying we, because I know that's where I'm at, so if some of you are like, listen, I read the Minor Prophets all the time, I'd love to talk to you later, but I think for a lot of us, we, we find ourselves not reading these and I wanna talk about why perhaps that happens for us today. Um, but they're, they're the, the people in these stories, the people that are writing these books are these 12 prophets. And the 12 prophets, are people who are speaking warnings from God to the ways that people had been living in self-deception. That's exactly what prophets are doing. The prophets are saying, hey, God has something to say about the fact that you think things are going better than they are. And because God loves you, God has some things to say about that. But let's be honest, the way that that, that is pointed out is sometimes really a harsh reality and really hard to hear. 
But the people in this time, they wanted to believe that their actions weren't hurting themselves. They wanted to believe that their actions weren't hurting other people, that it was fine, it's not that bad. But they were hurting themselves. They were hurting other people, especially the poor and the marginalized. The injustice was mounting and mounting and mounting and things were happening that were just wrong. Yeah, just think right now for a second. Think about something in your life where you see it on the news or maybe it's in your own life or your neighborhood or your family where you're like, that is just wrong. Think about, think about something right now. Do you ever notice what goes on in your mind and heart when you think about that? You think about it and you're like, you're, I, I, for me at least, my heart starts racing a little bit and I just feel these things bubbling up in me and I think what it is is, is anger and frustration. Like that is just wrong. It's wrong that kids at Sheridan School don't know if they're gonna have food on the weekend, right? That's just wrong. And I feel kind of angry that that's the reality for some of these kids, especially when this injustice or these wrong things are done to people who can't, take, can't defend themselves or can't take care of themselves like kids. I think that this is the response that we feel. And part of the reason that's the response we feel is because we are created in the image of God. And when God sees this, people hurting each other, hurting themselves, God feels that same feeling of that is wrong. I'm angry about that. That makes people hurt each other. That God's saying, I made these people in my image and they're degrading the image of God in themselves and one another. I'm not totally sure I feel comfortable all the time with God feeling that way, but I don't know if I could follow a God who didn't. God didn't just stand by. God spoke through these prophets to confront these people in these stories. So it's important for us to remember that these words were not written to us or a or for us, about us, they're not, the, the people in the story are not, are not us, so we shouldn't just transplant ourselves into that time, because it was long, long time ago. However, I think that the, the stories and the words are here now for us. They're here for us to be able to learn and to be able to understand some things that are going on, for us to be able to allow the Holy Spirit to help us process what are some of the areas of self-deception we find in our own lives? And so I have a couple thoughts about why we don't read them, all right? Can I share with you? So if you have other ones, I'd love to hear them. But I have a couple thoughts about why we don't read these books very often, at least most of us don't. The first part I just wanna say is I think that when we read the history of Israel, it feels easier to stop at like David and Solomon. So put up the timeline for me, Adam, would you? I feel like it's easier for us to stop at the, you know, we know some of these stories and then there's King David and, and he wrote a lot of the Psalms and then there's Solomon. And then do you see how it says the kingdom divides? And so what happens is God's people divide into a group uh, in the north called Israel and the group in the south called Judah. And then things get really weird, okay? Basically, there's this long line of kings that have an even longer line of issues. Big issues, you guys. And so this story in First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel are talking about all of these leaders that totally, totally flop and absolutely fail. And then what we see, see where the time of the prophets comes into the story? It's in this really messy part of the story. And I think that as they continue on, the prophets are speaking into this mess. God's people had begun to rebel from God, but in really, really detrimental ways, really hurtful ways, especially to the marginalized and the poor and the weak. And people were starting to serve a bunch of other gods, sometimes gods that had names, other times they were just focusing on other things. And this is when God's prophets speak into this time. And at this point, then, you kind of see the, the Assyrians, it says there, and, the, and Babylon. 
From then on, God's people start to be um, occupied and controlled by these other very powerful oppressive groups like the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And, uh, and that's where the story continues on as the prophets in these like 800 BC and on, maybe 400, 300, and 400 years is when these prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets are speaking into the story. Now, I don't know if everybody totally followed me on that, but do you see why maybe these stories didn't make it into Sunday school? Did you see how if you grew up in the church, maybe they weren't on the flannel graph or the veggie tales? I feel like veggie tales attempted some of these stories and it just got really weird when vegetables were trying to figure out the divided kingdoms and it just got weird. So I think that's one of the reasons is that we're not as familiar with what's going on. So when we read the words of the prophets, we're not totally sure what exactly that they're talking about. And then I think that if we're really now as adults, there's two things that I want us to focus on why I think we don't read it. I'm just gonna explain them really quick. There's these two things that have to do with how we function and cognitively understand things that we're reading in an ancient text. The first thing is cognitive dissonance. Who's heard the phrase cognitive dissonance? Few people, okay. So the definition is mental discomfort experienced when there's information given to us to see what we, that there's two opposing beliefs about ourselves, about others, about God, about the world. It, this information causes us to go, wait a second, these things don't line up. It's what comes up in us when we face our self-deception. I thought that I valued this, but now I'm facing the reality that I'm actually doing this. And these two things coexisting in my mind caused cognitive dissonance. Nobody that I've ever met enjoys the feeling of cognitive dissonance. And so that's one of the things that comes up in us when we read the prophets, at least for me. And I think that's one of the reasons we don't read it. Here's a, a second reason that I think we don't read it, and that is this idea of dualistic thinking versus dialectical thinking. Maybe you've heard some of these phrases before too. Uh, it's not diabolical thinking. That's like a different sermon. We're not talking about diabolical, all right? So dualistic, maybe you've heard this phrase before. I put a definition here. There's only two alternatives to most problems or realities. Have you heard this before? This idea that, well, there's either this or there's either that. There's either good or there's either bad. There's either conservative or there's either liberal. Like we have all of these, it's like there's only two options thing. This is called dualistic thinking. This is actually a shortcut that our brains make in order to just bypass cognitive dissonance. The ability to have to say, wait a second, some of these things, maybe there isn't just two ways to look at it. So then dialectical thinking is not necessarily the opposite of dualistic thinking, but it's the ability to synthesize what seems like two opposing alternatives or contradictions. If that's making your brain hurt, let me give you an example. So for instance, you can simultaneously love somebody and also be angry with them, right? Dads, do you ever feel towards your kids that you just love them, but you are also angry with them? Yes, I see a couple nods, okay. You can, it's both and, right? Another example would be your feelings and emotions are valid and you need to pay attention to your feelings and emotions. And you can be working to control those and work through those emotions at the same time. You can validate the emotions and be working on the emotions. Do you see the difference? Dualistic thinking is either or, and dialectical thinking is both and. And not everything can be synthesized, that, that, that's true. Some things are opposite, some things don't come together, but I think there's way more things that fit in a dialectical way of looking at them then dualistic thinking would allow us to believe. I hope you're thinking about some of these aspects and conversations you've had in your life. 
See how much more psychological strength and flexibility it takes to engage with something that is dialectical? Do you kind of get what I'm saying? Not if you get what I'm saying. All right, so in these books that we don't read that we're gonna talk about in the next few weeks, we see some things that are dialectical, I think, and it's hard for us to reconcile them. So put that slide up there. We see when it comes to God's character and who God is in these stories that God is, we both see God's anger and God's compassion. We see God's judgment and God's hope. We see the humans going through trials and they're being delivered almost at the same time. Do you see how there's an, a need for the ability to synthesize two things that seem opposing when you read the prophetic books? And I think the fact that we wanna jump from one to the other, oh, these books are about God being angry. No, 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 look, the book's about God being compassionate even though people are not making good decisions. It's about both. That's really hard. That's why we don't teach it in Sunday school. That kind of thinking is not for 10-year-olds very often, all right? Totally makes sense. It's not anybody forgetting to do their job. So today I wanna use, a, very briefly, uh, one of the books that we don't read very often uh, to highlight what we're talking about and then every week from here on out, we're gonna have a different book. There's actually 12 of them, as I said, it's the book of the 12. We're only gonna go through six. And so I really wanna encourage you to read these books on your own. They're so short. Most of them would take you 10 to 15 minutes to read them. And I even put a blog, put that slide up there, Adam, with the blog. So we, we have a blog, millcitychurch.com slash training slash blog. And what I did is I put all of the scripture for all of them there where you can just click on them. And it's on Bible Gateway where it'll actually read it to you. And the guy's accent's like a little bit British. It's really nice. And then we have something called the Bible Project. Maybe some of you have seen some videos from the Bible Project. What they do is make little overview videos of each book. So I have them all linked for you. Five minute video, 10 minute to read. Five minute video, 10 minute to read. In six weeks, I think we could read 12 of them. That wouldn't be too hard. Because then it can be the books you read instead of the books you don't read, right? All right, so I wanna use an example for you so you can get what I'm talking about with the Bible Project videos and actually let the Bible Project video give you the background to Micah and two little short clips, okay? So this is what these videos are like. We'll start with the first one. The book of the prophet Micah. Micah lived in a small town named Moreshet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about the same time as Isaiah. And both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel had split long ago, and both had been violating their covenant with the God of Israel. So Micah warned that God would bring the big bad empire of Assyria to take out the northern kingdom and come ravage Jerusalem. And he also warned that after them, Babylon would bring an even greater destruction. Like all the prophets, Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel, or as he puts it in chapter 3, I am filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so most of this book explores Micah's accusations and his warnings of God's judgment on Israel. But Micah also had a message of hope that countered these warnings about the restoration God would bring on the other side of his judgment. And if you dive into the book with us, you'll see how this works. So the first two sections of the book develop Micah's accusations right, and warnings against Israel second. and We're its We're going to skip to the end. So let me just su summarize. Isn't that cool how they do that? There's a ton of them. There's one for every book of the Bible. So let me just summarize what happens. If you were to read the rest of Micah, which is pretty short, what you'll see is uh, accusations and hope. Accusations and hope. Back and forth, back and forth. If you're able to look at it dialectically, you'll see that the prophet goes back and forth between how 
God is saying, this is not okay. And God is saying, but I love you and I have hope and compassion on you. Back and forth, back and forth. Now play that second video so we see how it ends. Final section of the book returns to this pattern of warning followed by hope that we saw in the first parts of the book. So Micah exposes again the unjust economic practices of Israel's leaders and how it's destroying the land and its people. And here Micah offers his famous words that summarize what it means for Israel to follow their God. He has told you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is exactly what Israel has not been doing, and so they will come to ruin. However, the book ends with another powerful note of hope. Israel is personified as an individual who's sitting alone in shame and defeat. It's a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, and he begs God to listen and forgive. But why? Why should God listen to and forgive this faithless and rebellious people? Well, the poet offers two reasons. First, he says, because of God's character. Who is a God like you who forgives sin and pardons rebellion? He knows that God's mercy is more powerful than his anger or his judgment. And the second reason is because of God's promises. He says, you will stay true to Jacob and show covenant love to Abraham as you swore so long ago. Now, these are the final words of the book. They're an allusion to God's covenant promises to Abraham and his family all the way back in the book of Genesis, that all nations would find God's blessing through Abraham's family. But to become a blessing to the nations, Israel must first be faithful to their God. And so this explains this back and forth between judgment and hope in the book of Micah. If God's going to bless the nations through Israel, then he must confront and judge the evil among his people. But his judgment is what leads to hope. Because God's covenant love and promise are more powerful than human evil, and his ultimate purpose is not to destroy, it's to save and redeem. Or as the concluding lines of the book put it, God delights in covenant love, so he will again show compassion. He will trample our evil he will toss our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's what the book of Micah is all about. Really cool. I love how they're able to, to consolidate that. So we have that, like I said, all on our website. Um, but as we go through this passage, as, as you think about this overview of the book, what sticks out to me, which I imagine sticks out to some of you, is Micah 6.8. In fact, I think Micah 6.8 might be one of the most popular lines out of all of the minor prophets. I remember Josh and Bethany made me a poster with Micah 6.8 on it. And it's for good reason that Micah 6.8 is one of the highlighted passages because I want to suggest today that Micah 6.8 and what it means is actually maybe like the big idea of the minor prophets. It's the main point of what these 12 people were trying to say to God's, to God's people in this time. Do you see in even that little overview how both God's anger and compassion are represented? How God's judgment and God's hope are represented? About how humans are going through trials, but God's also bringing deliverance? And so here's what I think is super important, and I think I have a slide for this too. It's the depth of God's anger that reveals the radical depth of his compassion. It's the honesty of God's judgment that reveals the reality and the honesty about hope, that it's real. And it's the struggle of the trials that reveal the power through which God delivers people. 
Do you see how you have to have these two things in order to fully grasp them? And how actually when they're brought together in that dialectical type of way, they help us see a deeper reality in both sides of things? We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. So let me just finish up by talking about Micah 6.8 for just a few minutes. The narrator of the video says, Micah's famous words that summarize what it means to follow God. In a lot of ways, I do think that these are some summary words of what God's trying to say. All of this is about what I'm inviting you to do. God's saying to the people, we, you know how you want to live. You know how I want you to live. And what you're doing is not that. You're caught up in self-deception thinking that it's fine, but it's not. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting other people. Do you see how what, what, what God's trying to say to the people through Micah 6.8 and these types of prophets is, you're not bearing my image. I made you with this incredible gift like no other mammal on the planet to bear my image, and you're destroying it and destroying it in other people. And God's trying to point that out. I do think that Micah 6.8 gives us this opportunity. Uh, Micah 6 starts with the first five verses, almost like God is in a cosmic courtroom. And God is saying to the people, look at, look, look at all I've done for you. I don't understand why you're kind of rebelling and running away from me. Look at all I've done. And, and, and the, the scripture there says that God says, look at the ways I've saved you. And then the humans respond, actually, in verse 5 through 7. You can read this. The humans say, okay, okay, we see you're upset. What can we do? Can we have some more worship services? Do you want some special oils brought to you or some sacrifices? Or maybe we could do some honoring ceremonies. And then instead of God responding, it's the prophet Micah who responds. And he says, he has shown you, oh human, what the Lord wants from you, right? God wants you to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And it's super interesting that he says God has shown you because it's proving this point that throughout these other prophets who were also writing either at that time or before, God's been saying this the whole time. This is echoed throughout the major and minor prophets. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Let me tell you what each of those words mean just at the depth of them. Justice, in Hebrew, it's mishpat. And it's sometimes, but most of the time in this scenario, it's not talking about retributive justice, like, right, you did something wrong and so you have to pay the consequences, but restorative justice, that people can choose to see the vulnerable people, vulnerable people around them who are being taken advantage of them and help them, and steps to advocate to change social structures that prevent injustice. This is what this ancient word means. This isn't something new. This is what this ancient word means that's been a part of the ancient Hebrew scriptures and it now is for us today. And then mercy is the word hesed in Hebrew. It means loving kindness. Um, it's sometimes translated as mercy. Loving kindness, faithfulness, forgiveness. Most of the time when this word is used, it's talking about the way that God loves us. God loves us with this radical hesed, loving kindness. And then humbly, this is an interesting one. It's called, uh, in Hebrew, it's tsana. And it means with, Hebrew, with humility, right? With a humble countenance, but also this word that I think is super interesting prudence. We don't use that. I don't use that word very often, prudence. But what it means is this ability to choose to be disciplined, to choose the things that you know are good. And what I love about combining with God and prudence is you don't have to be disciplined all by yourself. If you walk with God, God will help you be the person that you want to be. That's what this is saying. 
And so, I mean, on our best days, I think this is who, at least I'll speak for myself, on my best days, this is who I want to be. This is who I want to be. I want to be this person who lives these things out. Put that summary slide up there. I want to be this person who, put that next one up, I, trying to, to kind of just summarize the prophet's perspective. I want to be somebody who gets to join God in making wrong things right. I want to be somebody who gets to choose mercy knowing that we don't deserve mercy either, but God has given it to us. And I want to be somebody who gets to walk humbly with God. I want to choose discipline. I want to have that over mere pleasure or happiness and things like that. And I know that I can't do it by myself, so I want God's help through the relationship I have with God. At least for me, man, this is what I want to do. This is who I want to be, and I hope and believe that some of you do too. What's interesting is that studies are being done about who we actually say we want to be and what we actually say we think about God. And in North America, there's been a really interesting study out, and we'll talk more about this later, uh, where they're calling the most common view of God and the cosmos and humanity moral therapeutic deism. Maybe some of you have heard it. There's six things that, have to, that summarize it. That most people believe this at this point in North America, kind of regardless of what religion they say they're a part of. That there's a God who exists that created and ordered the world and watches over human life. God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then finally, good people, if they're good enough, go to heaven when they die. So I actually have a slide that puts these two up next to each other, and I just want you to think about it for a second. Because there's something really um, alluring to me about this other one. Like this idea of like, yeah, God wants me to be happy. This is good. This, I don't have to worry about these other things necessarily. I can just be kind of good, and it's fine. But I have to tell you that my life experience so far even though I have only lived 36 years, I just don't think that this would hold water for me. Like, I just don't think that when I watch the news, I can believe this. I just don't think it's a worldview that I can stand on. I just don't think it makes sense. I don't think that the prophet Micah would say that it makes sense either, but even if you were to take the authority of scripture out of it, I just don't think this works. Not with the pain that I've suffered in my own life, not with the things that I see happening to people around me, I can't do it. It doesn't make sense for me, and I encourage you to think about it in your own life. I don't see this in scripture, and I also don't see it as functional, a functional way to live in the world that we live in. And I think that's why God spoke into this space saying, this doesn't make sense. You're invited to join me in justice and mercy and walk humbly with me. And without that, it's not gonna go well. So I want us to read these books that we don't read, throughout the rest of these next six weeks. And what I'm inviting us to do is to, to take Micah 6.8, like a, I'm gonna use the phrase hermeneutical lens. Hermeneutical lens, that's a seminary word. It's as if you take um, Micah 6.8 glasses on and you read all the other stories through the lens of what the prophet is saying, this is what God really wants for you. And if you were to read all these other stories with those Micah 6.8 glasses on, then what you'd have the opportunity to do is to invite the Holy Spirit, because without the Holy Spirit, this isn't gonna go well. Invite the Holy Spirit in to say, okay, as I read these words that weren't written to me, they weren't written about me, but Holy Spirit, how can they be for me right now? Because I wanna be somebody who makes wrong things right. I wanna be somebody who steps into spaces and offers mercy even when it's not deserved. 
And I want to be somebody who figures out how to not have the goal of happiness as the highest goal, but meaning and purpose and walking with God humbly. I want to be that person, and only with the Holy Spirit will we be able to do that. Because the Holy Spirit might also reveal some other things to us in our lives, like the ways that we contribute to injustice, the ways that we want to choose like spite instead of mercy, and the ways that we want to be walking with God, but we realize we're walking with a whole bunch of other little gods instead of the God that gives us true freedom. I think if we're willing to let the Holy Spirit do this with us as we read this, I think you're gonna be able to receive God's compassion and loving kindness and mercy and even the justice that God does in your life, making the wrong things right. I think you'll be able to experience that in a way that you never have before. So that's the invitation to us in this conversation. I'm gonna invite the band to come up we're gonna practice communion as we always do. And what this is is an opportunity for people to come forward and to celebrate this open table that Jesus said, I want you to remember me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember that my body was broken for you and my blood was shed for you. And remember me. But I also wanna invite you as you come up to just have this prayer in your heart, to just express to God, God, I want to be someone who does justice. I don't know how to do that all the time, I need your help. God, I want to be someone who offers mercy even though I'm really angry at this person. Jesus, help me be someone who walks with you. Holy Spirit, help me know how. Actually, the action of getting out of your chair, we're going to form two lines, that can just be your active prayer this morning if that's where you're at. And if it's not where you're at at this point, if you're trying to seek Jesus, we do welcome you to the table. So these two lines will be here. You'll walk this way and take a gluten-free bread, dip it into the grape juice, and then we'll have some people on these walls who would just love to pray for you. We love the opportunity to pray for people here at Mill City about this. And I, I also invite you to, just to play, pay really close attention to the lyrics of this song that the team is singing as, as you decide to come whenever you feel ready.